The Daily Tap is live for Monday. We are going to talk about the Bucks' big win in game number one, sending a message to the rest of the NBA. We're also going to recap the Packers' draft and why they knocked it out of the park. And we'll also talk about why planning your weekends, you need to have all the details. We'll bring that on Chuck's Corner and all of that today. Before we get started, though, I want to make sure you're following us on social media. Uh, tapping the keg on Twitter, tapping the keg sports on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. We had a lot go out uh, this weekend, so I hope you guys check it out. Might be getting back into writing. I don't know. Keep teasing it. Keep talking about it. Probably need to do a Chuck's Corner on that. Maybe that will be something for tomorrow. Uh, just kind of my battles with it. Um, maybe you care. Maybe you don't. But I need to at least talk about it because this is at some point my therapy, if you will. Uh, but also. Uh, make sure you're subscribing. Um, if you're new to the program, maybe you came in, maybe you saw some reviews, you're like, I want to check this guy out. Um, we are on Apple, we're on Spotify, we're wherever you're your podcast. Make sure you're subscribed. Um, if you're already subscribed, rate, review, or share with friends. Like, I would rather you tell five people about this podcast and tell them what we are about um, rather than you rating a review. So please tell your friends, tell us about this. We'd really appreciate it. Um, I think we are hitting our peak. Um, sadly, I'll be in Mexico next week, which more to come on that, um, which will be a bummer. But we will figure it out and we'll make do. I have a couple things in the hopper and hopefully some help from friends. All right, let's get to the Bucks and talk about their big win against Celtics on Sunday. The great Lloyd Banks had a song, I believe it's called Hunger for It's in his Hunger for More album. Um, it's all oh no, a song called Ain't No Click uh, with him and Tony Yeo. It starts out the money machine going, and he's like, Tony's home, yada yada, and it's like, you fucked up now. And then I go, the beat drops, and there you go. That's how I would describe the Milwaukee Bucks right now. You fucked up. You absolutely put a chip on this team's shoulder. Everybody told the Bucs that they had no chance. The Bucs didn't belong here. This was going to be Celtics in five. And you'd best believe that the Milwaukee Bucks heard that noise. Uh, you know, if, if it were gambling, and I know some people say gambling is overdone and whatever it may be, that's your opinion. You're, but that's how we are in society at this point in time. The Bucs were four and a half point dogs today. All right. The Brooklyn Nats were never that low of a underdog against the Boston Celtics. Uh, I think they were four um, in game number one. Then I think they were three and a half point dogs in game number two. The the Bucks were the lowest of the Brooklyn Nets. Yes, that Nets team they got swept. People weren't giving the Bucks a shot from a Vegas perspective. Now this could have been the fan bases jumping on Boston as a very public team, but even that showed you how little people believed in this Milwaukee Bucks team. But what the Milwaukee Bucks did was send a complete message to the NBA and to everybody in Boston that they are the best team in the NBA. That they are the best team in the NBA. I've been telling you that for a couple of weeks now. The defense has been absolutely unreal. Uh, since the Bucks uh, allowed, you know, 114 points against the Chicago Bulls in a lot in a loss, the clamps have been out. And I'm not sure if the Bucks are even going to let them go. Think about that Bulls game and compare it to what we've seen the last three, four games for the Bucks. It's been absolutely phenomenal. It's been night and day. It might not even be night and day. It might be, you know, summer to the depths of winter, right? Like that's how far end on the spectrum they are. The Bucks allowed 63 points in that first half against the Bulls in game number two. 
Since then, no team has cracked 50 in the first half. The Bucks held the Bulls to, I think, under 40 in that game three. They were right at 40 in game four. Uh, 48, I think, in game five. The Celtics only had 46 tonight. Like, the Milwaukee Bucks have been playing defense from the start. They're not sort of casually getting into this game. The light is being flipped on right as this game starts. It's not something they're waiting for. They are attacking at every waking moment, and you absolutely love to see it from Milwaukee. And everybody got so caught up in the Celtics, right? Everybody wanted to talk about how the Celtics are this next great team, that they're this defensive juggernaut, all the stuff that they've done. The analytics love them. You know, a lot of the national media was all over the Celtics. But they forgot that Milwaukee is the champions. They are they're not going to give up that belt easy. The Bucs aren't just going to let the Celtics walk all over them. They are going to make it a fight. And the Bucs are going to go down fighting. So they showed that today to me. Like they had their teeth just ready and raring to go. Usually in game number ones, the Bucs do not win that. I said it on Friday. Like don't let us win this game. Because this is a game that the Bucs usually lose. I think they've lost, gosh, I don't know. Like eight of their, they've lost a few of the, I, they've definitely lost game ones. They lost game one against Atlanta. They lost game one against Phoenix. They lost game one against Brooklyn. So that's three straight game ones last year. And then they beat Phoenix. They lost that one to Orlando. They lost to Miami. So they lost five of their last six before this year. Now they've won, they won that Chicago game, but that Chicago game was like pulling teeth. They did not look sharp. They did not look crisp at all. The Bucks picked up the intensity from the start. This was not your typical game one Bucks, in my opinion. I think they had some game one issues early on. And the fact that they were leading by three after the first quarter said a lot to me. Because I didn't think the Bucks played well at all in that first quarter. And the fact that they were up three said to, that the Bucks had a long way to go. That the Bucks could easily win this game. And I felt pretty confident after game, after quarter number one because I thought the Bucks should be down 10. Like I thought the Celtics should be out and running and this should be, you know, classic game one and feel everybody out and be like, all right, we'll take the national media smoke and everybody can pump their chest and say they're going to be right. But all of a sudden the Bucks go on a 10-0 run to end the first quarter and they really never looked back from that point on. Like, I'm sure it got close, but I, I don't really remember it getting, you know, closer than, you know, three points, especially in the second half. You know, Bucks had a 10-point lead, and they never really let go of it. And I think there were other key moments in that, right? Giannis goes out with his fourth foul with about three minutes and 37 seconds left. And Mark Jones, who's miserable, um, not a Mark Jones guy, not a Doris Burke guy. I'm officially off the Doris Burke bandwagon. Um, it was cool once upon a time. But Doris is way too biased to be a broadcaster. Uh, she is just a full Celtics homer. She's from the Providence area. I understand that. But Doris can't call Celtics games. She might can call other things, but she can't call Celtics games. But anyways, the side tangent, Jones marks that it's like the Bucks are up seven. Giannis is going out. He's like, Mark, this is going to be a huge moment in the game. And we all felt it. Like, we were at the bar. We were like, oh, my God, this is kind of it, right? Because if the Celtics get on a run, Tatum gets hot, Brown finds himself, and this is a tie game heading into the fourth quarter, we're going to mark that fourth foul. That was a really reckless foul by Giannis. Like, Giannis, that was one of the dumber plays I've seen from Antetokounmpo in the last, I don't know, two or three years. Like, that was old, young Giannis, you know, not really thinking with his head there. And the Bucks held strong. All, you know, they basically held their water. I think they might have been up 10 heading into that fourth quarter. And 
they held their water, and that to me, again, we talked about that championship resolve after game three. We talked about how the Bucks sort of looked like champions. That was championship shit right there. They have a counterpunch that I think is a larger counterpunch than anyone in basketball. They are like a Tyson Fury or Canelo Alvarez or whoever you want to use as your boxing comparison. Katie Taylor or Amanda Serrano, if you watch that great female fight over the weekend. I didn't. I just saw Twitter tweeting about it. Usually that's how it goes with fighting in me. Like I don't. I like boxing. I like UFC. I, I don't necessarily go out of my way to watch it. But like I will see the tweets. And I'm like, oh, it must have been a good fight. Like, and if it's really good, like then I'm like, all right, let's find an illegal stream. But I was watching Batman, which I can do a review on another day, uh, which is incredible. I really enjoyed it. But anyways, um, to go back to the counterpunch, yeah, the Bucks are different than anybody, man. They are just so different, and the Celtics could not do anything inside the center circle today. Kirk Wolsberry had a bunch of stats on the Celtics' problems with scoring two-point baskets. Entering today, the Celtics had never made fewer than 14 two-point shots in any game. Any. Today, they've made 10. The Celtics have played 6,630 total games. The Bucs just did that in game one. That, to me, is like scary hours for a Celtics team. And we'll talk about not overreacting and everything like that. But, like, that would scare the living shit out of me if I was a Celtics fan. Because I would be scared to death that the Milwaukee Bucks, this, you can't solve, how do you solve that? What do you, what do you do differently? Do you bring in more short, you know, mid-range twos? Is that what you're, you kind of do? Do you start kind of bringing in that mid-range game? Does Tatum even have a mid-range game? Does Jalen Brown have a mid-range game? I mean, they've been so classically trained to shoot threes, right? But the Bucks want them to shoot threes. The Bucks, you know, I, there was a stat, another stat that I had, which let's see if I can find that one from Tom Fernelli, who's not a basketball guy. He's a basketball fan, but he's a college football guy. But thought this was good. The Bulls, he's a Bulls fan. Bulls shot 28.8 threes per game in the regular season. 36.8 against Milwaukee in round number one. Now, the last game probably amplified that. The Celtics attempted 37.1 per game in the regular season, 34.5 against Brooklyn. Today, they took 50, franchise high. And then Tom noted a little personal opinion. I'm sensing a defensive strategy. The Milwaukee Bucks want you to shoot threes. They want you to get caught up in shooting three-point shots. There were so many bad threes from Boston. Some of them were in rhythm. I thought Al Horford actually was probably the best player for the Celtics in this game. If I, Robert Williams was also very good um, defensively. I thought Robert Williams was very tough to deal with, which we can talk about a little bit later. But the Celtics were really off from deep. And it was, I wouldn't even say it was surprising, right? Like, I mean, Tatum made four, Horford made four. But after that, it's kind of... It's kind of scary. Marcus Smart missed five threes. Uh, he had that bad shoulder. Peyton Pritchard shot eight threes. Holy shit. So he missed six threes. Uh, you had a Stauskas tribal at the end. Shout out Nick Stauskas. Uh, even Robert Williams. Oh, no, that was the D. I was like, oh, I was like, Robert Williams did the three. It was the, the runner at the end. But the Celtics were bad, man, from deep. They, they made 18 threes, and they were 36%. And usually that results in the good stuff. This is from my guy Shafty. Uh, Celtics are 18-5 when they've made 17 or more threes this season. Three of those five losses have come against your Milwaukee Bucks. The Bucks have a defense defense that has really not been figured out yet. 
the only way you can beat the Bucks defensively in the playoffs is if you go just absolutely hair on fire. But even then, it might not be enough because the way that the Bucks work you defensively and force turnovers, don't, don't draw a ton of fouls unless the refs are going to call the game a certain way. And it was a very favorable home whistle from Ed Malloy and Scott Foster. And the fact the Bucks survived a home whistle from those two clowns is an accomplishment within itself. Another Goldsberry stat, too, of the Bucks' two-point dominance before we move to kind of more the offensive side of the ball. The Celtics were shot 3-for-20 from the field when Giannis Antetokounmpo or Brooke Lopez contested a shot and 1-for-15 on two-pointers. Again, I don't know how Boston figures this out. I don't know what the strategy is for Boston to say, all right, how are we going to combat this? What can we do differently? It feels like the Bucks had a game plan for Boston. Like, it sounds kind of crazy, but like with this game one, right? And game ones for the Bucks are usually like feel it out, very vanilla. You know, they kind of let the other team, you know, have that first punch and then they get the counter punch. It's almost like Mike Boonholzer and his guys were already prepping for the Celtics. Like they were already grinding tape on the Celtics. And again, I'm not trying to denigrate the Bulls or anything like that. But I do kind of wonder, after the Bucks won Game 4, after they took care of business in Game 4, did they start working on the tape of the Celtics and start trying to figure out different things they could do? Because it kind of feels that way. Because it this was not your typical Game 1. And I think there was a lot of that from the defensive side of things. Offensively, look man, the Celtics are good. The Celtics are good on defense, all right? Like, they they are as good as advertised. They put you in fits. It was not the best Giannis game. Uh, from a scoring perspective, he had 25 points on 27 shots. A very atypical Giannis game. Like, not something that you, you see a lot of, right? This is not, this is more of an outlier for Antetokounmpo than anything else but he got everybody involved he had a triple double he had seven assists in the first half the alley-oop to himself was kind of the dagger of this game the Bucks were up 14 in the fourth quarter and then Giannis throws that down and that kind of silenced everything and I think for a lot of people in Boston that was an oh shit moment that was like holy fuck Giannis Antetokounmpo is the best player in basketball and I think more and more people are starting to get on board with that And I remember, you know, Mitch and I were a little combative about, you know, Giannis and his popularity and everything like that. And I said to Mitch, like, I get he has a fan base, but I still think there are casual people that put LeBron or put Kevin Durant ahead of Giannis. And if you put either of those ahead of Antetokounmpo at this point, you're fucking either a complete fanboy or you just don't know basketball. That's that's pretty much it. And But yeah, Antetokounmpo definitely had life difficult with Robert Williams and Al Horford. I think Giannis is going to have to get back to shooting some more three-pointers and more mid-range stuff. They're really packing the paint on Antetokounmpo. It might not matter. He missed a lot of layups today. I don't think that's going to be something you see in game number two or even in game number three. I think it was more of a layoff thing. I think Giannis is definitely a touch guy. He needs to get himself you know, in a rhythm. And I think when you have multiple days off, I think that can kind of fuck with him a little bit. So I'll be curious to see if this sort of thing happens in game number three. 
in Milwaukee when they have a four-day layoff or if it's a little different even in game two. But I, I would imagine that Giannis's approach is a little bit different. He's going to grind this tape. He's going to study and figure out how do I work against Al Horford. You know, Al Horford was pretty good against Giannis today. And I imagine that if you want like the positive, if you're a Celtics fan, you're like, well, we did kind of, you know, make things difficult for Giannis, you know, offensively. Like this was not a dominant Giannis game from a scoring perspective. He dominated in other ways. His defense was incredible. His passing was incredible. But, you know, in terms of actually scoring the basketball, there was not a ton there. And I think Giannis will just have to figure out Al Horford again. I think Al Horford 2019 is a different player than Al Horford 2021 or 2022, excuse me. You would expect Al Horford to be worse. Three years later, you'd be like, okay, how is this guy not worse? He's like 30, you know, he's 35. He's three years older. Shouldn't he be worse? And you'd like, yeah. But there's something about Al Horford that's different. And I think Giannis will figure it out. I do also wonder if you're going to get a spry Al Horford in game number one, and then Al Horford wears down as the as the series goes on. Remember, in that game, that series against Boston where the Bucks get blown out in game number one, uh, and then in game two they come back, they win, uh, and then they have this awesome game three, which I think Giannis had a big night in that one. I have to go back, but I'll be I'd be curious to know like what was Giannis's scoring output as that that series went on. So that might be a little bit of an investigative research. So I do wonder if he will wear down Horford. I think Horford game one, game two, be all right. Maybe even game three because you get that long layoff. But I do think Giannis is going to beat him up. Like I don't think Al Horford is going to be the same guy in game five and game six with Antetokounmpo just punishing him. And the Bucks make life really hard for these guys. Like I think there are a lot of people complaining already about the physicality of the Bucks, And it's like people wanted 90s basketball back. But then when a team actually is playing 90s basketball like the Bucks are, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's too physical. It's too physical. Get big. Get fucking big. Deal with it. All right? You know? Uh, but yeah, I, I do think Giannis will figure out Horford. I'm not worried about that one bit. I think the fact the Bucks made 50% of their threes in the first half was so big. Like, that's how you knew this game one was different, is the Bucks were hitting shots early, and that was sort of what brought them out to a double-digit lead. Now, I was with Mitch. He was like, this is not sustainable. This might not last. And it didn't, right? They were 0 of 8, actually, in the third quarter. Law of large averages. But the Bucks still were ahead by 10. And it just, again, shows how good that defense was and why we started with the defense. But, yeah, the Bucks were really good from the outside today, which was important. You know, they were 12, actually 12 of 34. So they only made four threes in the second half. But, Again, I, I would argue that you only need like one really good half from beyond the arc. Like you don't necessarily need to be incredible for an entire game beyond the arc. Like I, I think it would be nice, but I don't know if it's necessary. Like I think you can definitely succeed with only one good half from behind the arc. And Bobby Porter's really hit the one that mattered the most. They're up twelve. Another dagger in this game was Bobby hitting that corner three. And being up 15 points. And that was that was a big moment for the Bucks. And again, another one where they didn't really look back. That was the first dagger. And then the second dagger was Giannis throwing the ball right to himself. Which was, again, all-time play. Uh, one of the, probably the highlights of the, the, the basketball. Or one of the highlights of the NBA playoffs thus far this season. Also, you got a ton 
from Drew, I thought was really good today. 25 points, uh, 9 rebounds, 5 assists. Like, Drew's effort should not be slept on. Uh, he definitely came to play. Bobby with the triple-double, as mentioned. The bench was really good. Uh, Grayson Allen proving he's not for and forth. Pat Connaughton being at home, I was worried a little bit. Maybe Connaughton trying too hard in Massachusetts. You know, probably had been to Celtics playoff games as a kid. Um, and he responded really well, so I was happy with that. And then Javon Carter. Javon Carter was an absolute dog today. Plus 25 today. Remember, Brooklyn gave him for free. He had 22 minutes in this game, which was a lot higher than what we saw against against the Bulls. And I do think Carter was a little bit of a secret weapon. And I do wonder if the Bucs showed him some Alvarado tape. Now, I'm not saying he was as pesky as Alvarado, but he gave off that vibe, right? Alvarado was a revelation for New Orleans in the playoffs. And he was in you know, Chris Paul's shirt from the start. And it seemed like every time Carter was out there, he was in somebody's shirt. Whether it was Jalen Brown, whether it was Marcus Smart, whether it was Peyton Pritchard, Derek White. Like, Javon Carter was everywhere defensively. And Brooklyn gave it to us for free. Gave him to us for free. That's incredible. That's absolutely phenomenal. I can't believe the Nets were that dumb. And Carter has been a great guy for us. And I think his legend is going to kind of grow as this playoffs goes on. Like he is a true X factor and someone that's really hard to deal with on the defensive end, especially when you have Carter and Holiday on the outside. Then with Grace Allen, whose defense continues to improve, like that's a really good second unit for the Bucks. And then you add Giannis that mix. You add Brooke Lopez, who, again, we talked defensively was great. Um, Javon Carter is going to be real special for the Bucs in this playoffs as well as in this series. I think there's a lot to like from Miss Takata. Despite my elation, despite being happy with this game number one and really just salivating at the idea of listening to all the pundits, listening to everybody talk about how good the Bucs were, I still want to just bring it all back to its game one. We got a long way to go. Game ones can be fraudulent. Look at the Milwaukee Bucks, right? How many times have we got our asses handed to us in game one and then won the series? I don't want to get too excited. I don't want to, you know, completely throw everything out and be like the Bucs are sweeping this team. Celtics are good. M.A. Udoka is a good coach. They're going to make adjustments. They will figure out a way to have a more balanced scoring attack. I promise you that. I don't expect a, another bad game from Tatum and Brown. On game number two, I would expect a little bit better from Marcus Smart. You know, I, I it's just one of those things, right? It's not going to be the same. It can't be the same every time out. As much as you like it to be as, as fun as just kicking teams' asses has been great for the last week, week and a half for the Bucks. at some point, you know, it'll get nitty-gritty again. But if the Bucks go home and it's 1-1, head into a raucous Pfizer Forum. Saturday afternoon... Pfizer Forum, I think weather right now is looking at like 56. Like it's going to be drunk as fuck in that stadium. That thing is going to be rocking and rolling. Best believe we'll be at Broadhouse. We'll see you later. I have a story about that later on this podcast. But we will be there, all right? And I hope you guys join us. We'd love to have everybody be a part of it. Um, it was a lot of fun there today. Not only Mitch and I, but it was really rolling. And now we... Kind of can win anywhere at the Broadhouse. Like, we've won upstairs, we've won downstairs, we've won outside. I feel like that place is our safe haven. A coach wanted me to do some stats on the Broadhouse of, like, my win-loss record there. I think I've only seen one loss there. 
I'm pretty confident that we have only seen one loss at the Broad House uh, since 2021 and that epic run, which is unbelievable, right? It's absolutely an unbelievable, you know, sort of record of where we are uh, and to just, just continue to sort of show the magic, if you will, of the Broad House. But yeah, we'll be there. And that game three will be rocking. And if it's 1-1, all right, cool. We have two at home, and you can kind of take this thing hopefully back to Boston 3-1. Or even if it's 2-2, all right. You know, game six, then game five is really important. And then on the same token, you know, if you do end up escaping and being up 2-0, well, then you're in the ultimate house money spot. Then you have a desperate Boston team coming in with a very rowdy Milwaukee fan base. And I don't know what, what could happen there. But I'm keeping my expectations level and just waiting to see what all happens. So we cannot wait. I cannot wait, though, for game number two because this was as fun of a Bucks win as we've had in a long, long time. Like, to me, I, I, I'm trying to think. This probably right up there with, like, game two against Atlanta last year where it was just this domination and Bucks couldn't miss and they were... They really just pounded the Hawks from the start. Down 1-0. Everybody's talking about the scrappy Hawks team. And Milwaukee shuts everybody up. That one. Also the game against Atlanta. Game 3. Was also a lot of fun. I think the Bucks kind of won that one going away. I don't think that was pretty tight. So those would be ones that I remember. The Brooklyn series was. Every game was a fight. Everything was a war. Um, and it really wasn't necessarily a fun one. It was kind of like chewing nails. Um, so thank, I'm thankful that at least we had one kind of easy breather. Um, we haven't had the dramatic game since that game two. Um, and if we have it again in game game number two this time around on Tuesday, well, so be it. We're probably ready for it. We're probably due for it. Um, but I cannot wait for six o'clock on Tuesday. It cannot get here soon enough. It was not only a great weekend for the Milwaukee Bucks, it was also a good weekend for the Brewers, who won 2-3 against the Chicago Cubs, would have liked to sweep, but beggars can't be choosers. We'll talk a little more about the Brewers uh, on tomorrow's show. But it was also a really good weekend for the Green Bay Packers. You guys know I don't like draft grades. I famously did a pro- podcast where the title was Fuck Your Draft Grade. Um, and I mean it. I think draft grades are one of the stupidest things that we do in society um, when it comes to sports because we don't know what these guys will turn out. This this will be completely unpredictable, right? Some team we thought had an absolutely terrible draft might have a, like a Super Bowl winning draft. Like a reason they win the Super Bowl is because of that draft. I think about Seattle all the time. Everybody gave them an F when they drafted Bobby Wagner in the first round. And Bobby Wagner was a Hall of Fame linebacker for the Seattle Seahawks. Now he's playing for the Rams, but it, it, it's just you never know. You really never know. I mean, the Jets, everybody's sucking the Jets' dick. And for good reason. Jets had a really good draft. But who knows, right? Maybe Sauce Gardner's hands issues can't can't like work. Maybe Garrett Wilson is not what they thought he was going to be. And it won't end up being like this big connection with Zach Wilson. Maybe Brees Hall was not the guy they should have chose. Maybe it should have been Kenneth Walker who went two picks after to Seattle. You know, who knows, right? We don't. We, we have no idea. That said, the Green Bay Packers had an A-plus draft. It was such a good draft from the Green Bay Packers. It was something that, it's hard to remember a draft where you come away from just so pleased 
with everything Green Bay did. There's really no head scratching, you know, things they did. There's no real room to criticize. People will find stuff, right? Like local radio will definitely have their angle of like, are we sure they did? Why didn't they do this? Why did they do that? Are you comfortable that they gave up picks to Minnesota? I guarantee you that will be a topic, which is a ridiculous one at that. Uh, because honestly, Green Bay took care of business in every category that you wanted. They needed to shore up linebacker, did that day one. They needed to shore up interior defensive line, did that day one. They needed an edge, did that day three. Needed wide receivers, did that day two and day three. Needed linemen, did that day two and day three. And then some really with a lot of their undrafted guys. The only spot they didn't really get was tight end. And I think that was just the nature of the draft, right? The way the draft broke, there wasn't really any tight ends available that Green Bay wanted when they were drafting, whether it be in round four or in round five. And also, Brian Gunaku said on Saturday, I think it was, that they think they have something with Tyler Davis. And then you can kind of see Tyler Davis having a little bit of potential. It would not shock me if Tyler Davis became the next Robert Tunyon and had just a, a huge impact this season. Um, because they and they, they can bring back Big Dog too, right? Like, what's what's to say Big Dog's not going to want to run it back with the Packers one more year? He's not retired. I'd have no problem bringing you know Mercedes Lewis back again, and maybe that was the plan all along that they were just going to see what the draft brought. And since they didn't get a tight end, Big Dog's probably on the table for the Packers again. And could you develop Tyler Davis into something special? We'll see. Um, Definitely something I think the Packers will take that challenge head on and try to make the most of it. I do wonder if the success of the Packers draft was because all the COVID restrictions were off. Remember, the last two years, the Packers could not travel to a ton of pro days. They had to watch it over Zoom. Uh, They couldn't bring guys in for workouts and everything like that. And I just wonder if the that being taken off, the kind of the restrictor plates being off, having guys visit, all this other shit. Like, I wonder if that played a large part in how successful Green Bay was from a draft perspective. If that really gave them a great line of sight onto what they wanted to do. They talked about how much they loved Christian Watson and how they wanted to go up to get him and that they weren't going to let him fall to another team, that he wasn't going to go to the Bears. He wasn't going to go to the Indianapolis Colts, who also needed a receiver, or the Pittsburgh Steelers, or anybody else. Christian Watson was going to be their guy, and you trade up for your guy. Now, there might be some debate on, you know, whether they, why didn't they just get Watson at 28? Well, I don't think they would have got. They would have got uh, Devontae Watt. Like, I don't think Devontae Watt comes to the Green Bay Packers if they draft Watson at 28. And why, and why, sorry, I want to say Watt. I, I think I mentioned this on Friday, but it sounds like a name that should be Devontae Watt, but it's Devontae Wyatt. Devontae Wyatt, like, I don't think he's there. I don't think he's there at, at wherever the Packers drafted at 53 or even if they trade it up. And I don't, I don't think you trade up for an interior defensive lineman. I just don't think that's. That's a good idea. Now, Travis Jones could have been a guy they got in the third round or the fourth round. I think he got ended up going in the third round, but which was a steal by the Ravens, of course. And the Ravens always get those guys you love. Uh, but obviously, there was something about Travis Jones that people weren't as high on as we were. Like Murph and I, like I thought Travis Jones could be a first round pick for the Green Bay Packers. Now they ended up going Wyatt instead. I thought Wyatt was too old, and you guys know that story from Friday. But I, I really do. I really do think that's why they moved up for Watson because they, they knew they could get him 
in that 34 spot that they knew no one had taken him yet. That one guy in, knowing the Buccaneers weren't going to take a take a wide receiver, and they moved up to get him, and they did it with a rival, which is unheralded, unprecedented, and something that I'm sure a lot of Vikings fans are unsure about today, especially with their new GM. Well, well why would you trade inside your division? And they they did it, man, and they got Watson, and they won't have a fifth year. I had a friend, I think Shannon asked me, like, why wouldn't they just draft him for the fifth year? And I think it really goes back to why it wasn't going to be there, and they really liked Wyatt, and I'm sure there were not a lot of other interior defensive linemen that they liked in the first four rounds. That's probably what it comes down to, right? That I'm sure they had other guys they liked from a receiver perspective, whether it was Alec Pierce, whether it was George Pickens. Uh, whether it was uh, Taquan Thornton, he went way too early to Patriots. But you get my point. Like I, I'm sure there were other guys that the Packers liked that you could have drafted in the second round from a wide receiver perspective. But when it came to Wyatt, I don't know if there were a lot of guys left after Wyatt. So that's why they probably did it. I think they would probably have preferred to get Watson in the first round, but they, they didn't get that opportunity. They tried to move into the first round with the Vikings 432 and the Vikings weren't having it and probably because they thought the Buccaneers might get Lewis seen and then they told the Packers call back tomorrow and we'll probably have something for 34 and that's exactly what happened and that's how you get Watson so yeah it sucks you don't get the fourth year but I'm or fifth year excuse me but I'm sure they can figure something out they also got another wide receiver in Romeo Dubes uh I want to call I think it's Dobbs but I want to call him Dubes like Dubes like that's awesome when he like catches a big catch like that works. That plays right away. Uh, Romeo Dobbs, he can be a guy that can take the top off of defense uh, really quick. Uh, 6 2, 2 15, uh, thousand yard receiver, back to back years. Like, has played a ton already. The Packers must have a great Mountain West scout uh, because they always seem to draft a guy or two from the Mountain West. Remember, Jordan Love also played Utah State. Uh, so there is obviously some sort of connection there for the Packers. Uh, but yeah, Duke. Dubes can play, and I think he's a guy that can contribute for Green Bay. I don't really understand the Marquez Valdez-Scantling projections for Watson. He's getting a lot of that, and I just don't think he's that player. I actually think Dubes is more like that, or Dobbs. I'm going to butcher that for a while until I like hear it more, so apologies for that. But I think you'll get more from them, from him in that NVS, take the top off. He's not that great of a route runner yet. I think that's going to come with time. Um, and I think Watson's a guy who can be more of a day one dude than than Romeo. Uh, I think Romeo will have moments, but I don't expect him to have a ton of snaps straight out the gate. But he was drafted in the fourth round, and that means you have some assumption that he can produce for you right away. He also took back punts. Watson took back kicks. So you immediately are bolstering up that special teams. And it wouldn't surprise me, too, if Dobbs is a gunner for, for the Packers this season. And he's a guy that's flying down the field, you know, making plays on punts. Um, and with whatever Rich Basicchio wants to do from a defensive side of things. Or um, special teams, excuse me, not special teams. As for offensive linemen, I thought Sean Ryan and Zach Tom were such Packer picks. Zach Tom got dinged for having short arms, and that's why people don't think he can play tackle. But the guy was tops in you know, college football when it came to protecting against the pass. 
last year in the ACC. And the ACC had a couple guys, you know, go in the first couple rounds from the front seven. Jermaine Johnson, who Tom played and held to basically nothing um, and did a great job against, um, he did well. So it's like, and Johnson got drafted in the first round. Johnson was a guy that I think people wanted the Packers to take. And they ended up not getting an edge till late, which we can talk about here in a second. But I would be, wouldn't be surprised if they give Tom a look at tackle. If they think Tom can compete for that right tackle position right out of the gate. They have a lot of guys that can compete for those right guard and right tackle positions. That is easily going to be the thing to watch for training camp. And we'll probably do a larger like, all right, now what are the storylines going forward? And one of them is definitely going to be that offensive line. Sean Ryan is a guy who I think he can play a little bit of tackle. He can play guard, um, definitely versatile, um, and can step in right away, just kind of like Josh Myers did. I think Sean Ryan can do the same. And the Packers, no linemen. That's one thing Brian Gunacus was a scout of a lineman. He knows linemen better than most in the NFL. I trust what the Packers do at linemen really more than any other position. So the fact that Tom and Ryan are both sort of can, seen as Packer guys, that excites me. I think both will contribute next season. It would not surprise me. And it's maybe something the Packers will do will do going forward. Now, this is an interesting thing to think about. I don't think it's going to happen, but I just want to throw it out there. There wouldn't be a way where they would get rid of Elton Jenkins, right? Like, Elton Jenkins is too good to get rid of. Is that right? Like, what's it's tracking with everybody, I know how good they've been at hitting on linemen, but, I mean, Jenkins is a special generational player. They wouldn't let Jenkins go to free agency, would they? I'm just, I'm kind of thinking out loud a little bit here. Just wondering, like, they're so good at drafting offensive linemen. And, yeah, maybe Ryan and Tom aren't as good as we think they are. But, like, I, I don't know, man. I, I definitely, definitely have to think a little bit about maybe, you know, moving on from Jenkins. I'm not saying that's something they should think about, but... You do wonder if that's what Green Bay is doing with all their linemen. They have a lot of linemen right now. They also are, I think they did a really good job with Josh Neiman. And I think Josh Neiman can play. Like, he's not a slouch. And I know he has a lot of pressure on him. Same with Amari Rodgers. But I, I think Neiman will respond to it. And I'm excited to watch that battle with the Hog Mollies this training camp. I think the Packers got a complete steal with Kingsley Engabar, uh, the edge rusher out of South Carolina. He didn't really have great testing, but the guy could ball. And that's kind of the David Bell thing. At Cleveland drafted David Bell. I would put David Bell on all your dynasty fantasy. Like, I think David Bell is going to be great for the Cleveland Browns. And and Ingbar is kind of in that same category, right? He did not test well. He didn't, he didn't really wow anybody from a combine perspective. But they, all the guy did was produce at South Carolina. He led the SEC, the best conference in football, in pressures last season. You know the Green Bay Packers love pressures. And maybe Ingbar is not a Ingbar, excuse me, is not a starter out the gates. But he's a guy that could definitely, you know spell over Sean Gary, spell a Preston Smith. I think it's a really nice rotational piece that the Green Bay Packers needed and they got with Kingsley Engabar. I probably butchered his name all three times. Tyree Carpenter, uh, seventh round guy. I mean, he could be a dude for the Packers. Definitely special teams, right? Like a, definitely a guy that I think could play on almost all the special teams units. Uh, four-year starter, which I love. 
Uh, wouldn't surprise me if the guys kind of made some plays. He's that hybrid safety linebacker. I love those guys. I think those guys have roles in football. They're always better on paper than they are on the football field. Like I love Deion Buchanan. I you couldn't tell me that Deion Buchanan wouldn't have been a good football player. Like I was all in on that idea. Um, they meant uh, article I read, read mentioned Josh Jones. Like Josh Jones sure was kind of like that too. But I think Carpenter can make some plays. And, you know, it's not necessarily a, a thing you'll need all the time. Like Savage and Amos play almost every snap. But it's good to have that guy, you know, just there for you. Uh, John Ford, another special teams guy, a massive guy. Nothing wrong with adding some more mass and maybe splitting some time for Wyatt Clark in the middle and rotating him in and TJ Shelton. Like, who knows, right? Like, I definitely think those are things you can have. Um, and then they have flyers at lineman and receiver at the very end with Rashid Walker and Samari uh, Torre. Like those are just, you know, nothing wrong with that. Seventh round is a complete lottery ticket. And so I thought everything the Green Bay Packers did was a success. And I was really happy with this draft. There's nothing that I look at this draft and I'm like, it went poorly, right? I think we're, we should be happy with this. And if you are nitpicking about this, you're kind of an asshole. All right, before we ride out, uh, like I said, we'll do a bigger thing on the Brewers um, tomorrow um, just because we're already like 40 minutes deep. Um, and I know everybody really cares about the Bucks and the Packers uh, to start our Mondays off. A real quick Chuck's Corner and kind of a funny story and something where you, ju- you just got to remind yourself and you know maybe this is a little bit of life advice for those, those who are just starting out in relationships or those who might struggle with planning with their significant other. So the Bucks play the Celtics on Saturday. Uh, I knew this before I knew a time. It was just TBD. I was sweating bullets because I have a birthday party that night. And I was like, shit. And now it's like at, I think I meant to mention this on the podcast uh, Friday. And I and like I was like, okay, it's at third space. They had TVs. Like, definitely going to be able to watch the game. Like, I'm not worried about that. But my relationship with the Broadhouse has obviously been stated. You know, I've only seen one loss there. I have to be at the Broad House when I have the opportunities. We usually are there Thursday through Sunday, and those are the hours of operation. Now, they might extend once the finals get going, but those are the hours of operation typically for the Broad House. And it was a Saturday. I'm like, oh, my God. Like That's going to be just a crazy, crazy fucking day. So then I look at it, and I, I mention this to my wife as I'm walking the dog, and we're talking on the phone. She's out of town at this point. And we get a little bit of an argument, you know, whatever, it happens. Um, and But I was an idiot because I didn't know what time it was. And I, I opened up my big mouth and I was like, I just needed to shut the fuck up. Because if I would have just waited until Saturday when she got, or, when, or it was Friday night. But like Saturday morning, I could have brought it up to her and been like, the game's at 2.30. Here's my initial plan and just kind of gave her a heads up. So... What's that to say is while it's important to plan around things and it's harder with the playoffs, it's harder now because it's out of COVID and we have just more plans as people, just wait until you have all the facts before you're spewing stuff out, before you're making plans, before you put that cart before the horse. It will go a long way. So yes, that is to say I will be at the browse. But now, now, which we'll probably talk about as the week goes on, I have to drink manage the shit out of myself because I cannot show up drunk to that party. Like, I, if I show up, like, hammered to that party, 
I will be in clamps. Like, I will be, you know, Chris Paul against Drew Holiday or Marcus Smart against Drew Holiday. Like, that's that. those are the kind of clamps I will be in. So I have to be, like, definitely a drink management game. And we've talked about drink management before. Um, if you're new to the podcast or you haven't heard that phrase before, uh, it's kind of like load management, but except with drinking. And it's like you have, you know you have something else going on, and you just have to just make sure you're not overdoing it. Usually what that means, no doing shots. Um, it also means, you know, maybe working in a spacer water here and there. Uh, shots, John Taffer. Um, it also means, you know, not drinking at a furious pace and trying to just, you know, bide your time. Like I, I would say today the pace was strong, but it was kind of because our bartender just kept asking us for drinks. Like shout out Jack at the Broadhouse. He was great. Uh, but he was like, you need a drink? You need a drink? I'm like, fuck, you know, yeah, I guess. Like, yeah, if you keep coming back, man, I'm going to keep buying them. That's kind of how this thing works. That's how this, how this relationship happens. But yeah, I think, uh, I think it's definitely something you just have to be on your best behavior. And that's, that's what drink management is. And I think, you know, you can make it happen. And sometimes, you know, you can do a little, you, you can have fun and just sort of make it look a little bit, you know, paint, paint a little lipstick on the pig, if you will. Um, because I've certainly done that too. Um, I'm a big game drinker. I've said that before. Uh, I'll say it again. Like I know, I know how to respond to big moments, um, just like our boy Giannis Antetokounmpo. All right, that does it for today's show. <laughs> we'll be back tomorrow. Um, we'll talk about the Brewers. I want to talk about the Brewers hot April and why it matters. Um, some might not think it's that important. We'll look ahead to Game Two uh, as well, and then probably Chuck's corner. Maybe a little NBA observations. Um, we didn't talk anything about. Warriors Grizzlies and we'll have the Sixers all the news with Embiid see how the Sixers look we'll talk about that a little bit um, on Monday's show all right take care of yourself have a great start to the week and we'll be back tomorrow see you bye